Welcome to ELT in Chile, a podcast about teaching English in Chile. I'm Daniel Gwim. And I'm Jose Luis Poblete. And on this podcast, we share our knowledge and experience teaching English in Chile, as well as online. In this episode, we're going to talk about teaching international exams. In addition, we're going to provide an update with some comments from a listener related to using podcasts in class, as well as talk about some current events related to the pandemic and online teaching. Before we get started, I'd like to mention that this is episode number 20. ELT in Chile is no longer a teenager in terms of episodes, and I think that this has been a great experience for both of us. Before we know it, we're going to be celebrating our one-year anniversary. Yeah, that's true, and it's been a great experience, and the idea, of course, is to keep doing this. I enjoy the research aspect of the podcast and also having conversations with you, you know, the planning and actually recording it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really great experience, and I'm so glad that we're doing this and we've made it to episode 20. So, moving on. Last week, I got an email from a listener named Michael that said he really enjoyed episode 14 when we talked about using podcasts in class. He brought up a few things that can be really helpful with using them when teaching languages. He shared a link with me that had the German news being read, but at a slower pace to help people learning German. And that reminded me of something that we completely forgot to talk about in that episode. So, Jose Luis, did you know that you can actually slow down the speed of podcasts that you're listening to? Yes, you can do that on Spotify and also on YouTube. And that's great help for somebody who's learning any language because it allows you to focus on certain aspects like word stress or connected speech. Oh, I didn't know you could do that on YouTube too. If you're listening to a podcast on Spotify, there's a menu that lets you choose between playback speeds of 0 0.5, 0 0.8, regular speed, 1.2, 1.52, and three times the regular speed. And this is something that I've recommended to students when they start listening on their own, but I somehow forgot to include it in the episode. So the other thing that Michael wrote about is that there's a way that he makes podcast playlists for his students. He has the playlist sorted based on their level, and they listen outside of class. He actually created a YouTube tutorial about how to create the playlist using a website called Listen Notes. I haven't tried it out myself, but from the tutorial, it looks like a really great resource. For anyone interested in checking it out, I'll put the link to the tutorial and website in the show notes. Thanks for your feedback, Michael. We love hearing from our listeners, so if you have any comments or questions about anything, you can write us at podcast at eltinchile.com. Again, that's podcast at eltinchile.com. Moving on, there are some current events that are important to talk about. Jose Luis, can you tell us about the first development? Of course. The quarantine has been lifted in some areas of Santiago. The government is supplying a kind of step-by-step -step plan so we can move around freely in some specific areas of Santiago during the week. But some other parts of Santiago are still under quarantine. The problem is that there, is, there was an increase in cases last week, also considering the upcoming national holiday, which makes the situation a little worrying, you know? We still need to take care of ourselves, and don't forget to please wear a mask. Definitely, yeah, and so we're recording this actually before the DSOCHO holiday. By the time this airs, it will probably be after the DSOCHO holiday. So, yeah, I'm also a little bit worried. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, with um, cases. Hopefully everyone's going to be responsible where they're celebrating social distancing, masks, and all that. So we have another development, and that's actually something happening in the United States. So the school year there has begun, and many schools are still teaching online. So I came across a school that has created a virtual back-to-school night for its parents, and it's really impressive. So for those listeners that aren't familiar with back-to-school night in the United States, it's an event that usually takes place about a month after school has started. Parents go to school, 
and they go to their children's classrooms and they get to meet the teachers. The teachers usually display student work and they give a presentation about the class content, their policies and their expectations and any other relevant information. You know, that's awesome. And, you know, I think that also encourages parents to participate in their children's education. And also, I think, which is very important, get to know the people that will spend a lot of time with their children, you know, even though it's in virtual in a virtual environment, but still like children are going to spend a lot of time with teachers, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that's a thing. And I mean, I don't have kids, but I mean, you're putting your children in the hands of these people that are going to be with your kids for eight hours a day. So being able to see who that person is, I imagine it's a real comfort for teachers. So it's a really nice event when it happens in person, but alas, the school year in person back to school night is impossible. So what this particular school did was they created a video on YouTube and they created a website specifically for their back to school night. It has a welcome message from the principal and you can take a virtual tour of the high school. In addition to that, every department has their own section with the teacher's names, classrooms, and their Bitmoji. When you click on the door, you are taken to their virtual classroom where they have a video with their back-to-school night presentation, as well as links to their course syllabus for each of their courses. And it's just really amazing to see how these teachers have embraced technology and how they're making it work for them and their students. If you're interested in checking out what the school's done, I'll include a link in the show notes. And last but not least, the second semester has started here in Chile. Can you tell us about it, Jose Luis? Yeah, the second semester is on its way. And like we said in our last episode, I think that all teachers feel more confident and more prepared to teach online. So in terms of lessons and courses, I think that everything has been adjusted, you know, to meet the requirements of online teaching. For example, taking language lessons to an online environment. Not, and also some of the adjustments that we have made are like uh, activities that students can do outside class besides, you know, the activities that we can do in class. So in a way, we're trying to share uh, the responsibilities, you know, not only teachers planning and creating the activities, but also students, you know, having to do lots of work, let's say, outside class, which is trying to balance, let's say, the, the field, you know. Another interesting area that has developed a lot are online webinars and conferences. I think this is great because it gives access to knowledge and areas that were not really accessible for most teachers, you know, and students around the world. Now, because of the pandemic, lots of experts in teaching communities are working together to help each other. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. And I really feel like you have this community coming together, which is really nice to see. And for those teachers that don't have as much access to resources, um, you know, having these free webinars and these free, you know, resources and being able to connect with other teachers, I imagine that's got to be really, really helpful. So moving on to the main topic of the podcast. Today, we're talking about international exams. So we're going to explore this topic through a series of six questions. So our first question is, what experience do we have taking and teaching international exams? So Daniel, I can say that I took the TOEFL IBT when I wanted to study abroad a couple of years ago. I decided to take the TOEFL IBT instead of IELTS because I had been teaching strategies to pass that test, especially speaking and writing. So my knowledge of the test helped me a lot because that was my main objective. You know, I wanted to pass the this exam with flying colors. I also took the GRE around that time because my initial plan was to study in the US, but I ended up going to Belgium instead. The GRE exam, as you know, was really difficult and I had to prepare a lot to get a good score in the areas of analytic writing and verbal. 
So I will have to say that the flashcards and the dictionary helped me a lot to prepare for that exam. You know, that's so interesting that you also took the GRE because that is not an easy test, especially with the verbal section. I mean, me as a native speaker preparing for that, you know, it was just so much vocabulary that I felt like you were just memorizing it for the purpose of the test. I felt like the analytical writing that is very, very relevant because you need to have good writing skills when you're going to study at the undergraduate or graduate level. Yeah, math, that is important, you know, logic, reasoning. But if you're not going to be studying mathematics, I don't know how much schools actually look at that section. No, and actually, I remember when I when I applied to that, to that uh, university in the States, they said, like, yeah, just focus on verbal and analytic writing. Like, we're not going to take into account let's say math, but also actually the verbal part gave me a lot of work. I remember having, like I said, the flashcards, taking notes. I have an, I had a notebook. It was like another dictionary that I had to create just to <laughs> learn all those words. And they were really complex words. My goal now is to take a Cambridge exam like CPE proficiency. Uh, I wanted to take it this year, but you know, we all know what has happened, you know, and uh, to prepare, I bought some official materials and I'd be preparing for that exam during this period. It's a difficult exam, but I think, you know, I just have to get used to the structure and I've been working on that. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're pretty dedicated. You're pretty hardworking. So when you set your mind to something, you know, you're going to make it happen. You're going to you know, make it work. So, <laughs> yeah, that's why I think uh, this is it. It's in a way important to have a goal. You know, we always have to test our language skills. Probably you feel the same. I don't know about Spanish and and uh, German. I have, you know, taken tests to prove my proficiency to become a teacher in the States, although I haven't taken any proficiency tests since that time, you know, but I do read in the languages. I use it in conversation and things. So what about your experience with teaching international exams? Well, I prepared students for uh, TOEFL IBT when I worked in a language school many years ago. Uh, the goal that, at that time was for students to pass the test as part of a government scholarship. And after working with them for almost a year, I would I remember that almost 95% of them were able to pass the exam. And the, the, their goal was to study abroad, you know, so I think they had to prepare. They had a year. And I think, yeah, the scholarship has changed a lot. At the beginning, they were accepted into the university and later they had to pass the language test. Now it's the other way around. They need to have the language qualifications first and then apply to, to the university. You know, I've also taught TOEIC preparation in Corfu courses, you know, a program that focused on wor people working in the IT sectors. Also at schools, uh, in high school, I prepare students for FCE as part of an extracurricular activity. That was a very good experience because I had to teach English and also sp specific strategies to pass the tests successfully. But it was in the context of high school, which is different, of course, from the context of university. Nowadays, I'm preparing students for the IELTS exam. Mainly because people have the opportunity to study or work abroad. But a key factor, of course, is passing the test, right? I prepared 10 students so far, and they have all passed the test successfully, which makes me really proud. That's wonderful. And it sounds like you have just so many different experiences when it comes to, you know, taking tests and also teaching tests. Let's say in a way, everything and experience helps, you know, but also it's going to prepare you and also to provide your students with a really good, you know, teaching experience. And also because they, they need to pass a test, test. And I think also that a test can have a really big effect on your future. You know, how about you, Daniel? What's your experience? Well, I have taken practice tests of TOEIC, TOEFL and IELTS 
in order to get an idea of what to expect when preparing students for those exams. I had the goal of actually taking an official TOEFL and an official IELTS this year in person, but those plans have been derailed by the pandemic. So while I don't have experience taking those specific exams, I took numerous standardized tests in order to get into college, graduate school, and then to get my California teaching credentials. So I took the infamous SAT as a part of the college admission process, and I also took the GRE to get into graduate school. And as for becoming a teacher, I had to take 11 tests altogether. They included a basic skills test called the CBEST, the RECA, which stands for Reading Instruction Competence Assessment about teaching reading to children, and then nine other tests, which were different versions of the California Subject Examination for Teachers. For short, it's called the CSET. Three of them cover the subject matter to get a multiple subject teaching credential to teach elementary school. Three other tests were related to the skills and knowledge necessary to teach Spanish. And the last three were needed in order to teach German. Yeah, I think taking those tests will really help you understand what students need to focus on, you know, developing. And in that way, you'll also get to experience what students feel when they take a high stakes test like that. Probably, Daniel, you're going to pass the test. I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, but also, I think in a way, it helps us understand what students go through, you know, <laughs> because that's a really stressful situation. But... I don't think you really need to take any additional test, Daniel, because you took 11 to become a teacher. Daniel, do you think it was really necessary to take all those tests? Well, you know, that's a really good question. So um, I should clarify that if I had only gotten my multiple subject credential to teach elementary school, I would have only needed to take five of those tests. And if I had only gotten credential to teach Spanish or German, it would have been four of those tests each. So, um, I mean, I think that California, at least the time when I was studying, California and New York had the highest standards for teachers and teacher credentialing. Every state is different, you know. Um, so if you move to another state, you might have to take additional tests and things. You might have to take additional coursework to be certified in that state. So I think that's a reality of what happens in the, you know, in the states. So, and I mean, I think the purpose of this test was to be sure that potential teachers had the necessary subject matter knowledge, as well as the teaching methods to be effective teachers. And I mean, if people are going to be educating our children, we want them to be highly qualified, right? Absolutely. And there's one thing that always sticks with me. I remember something that happened when I went to take the CBEST, which stands for the California Basic Educational Skills Test. So the test booklet, it was like closed shut. And you, what you had to do was you had to put your pencil inside the booklet and run it from like the left to the right in order to open the booklet to take the test. So they had printed instructions and the test proctor also read the instructions out loud. But there were some people that could not understand the written and spoken instructions and they wanted to be teachers. And um, seeing the fact that they were unable to do that, yet they wanted to you know, be in charge of an entire classroom. Uh, made me realize, you know, that not everyone that wants to be a teacher necessarily has the basic capabilities that we would expect. And apparently, the CBEST serves as a gatekeeper that kept many people out of classrooms that probably shouldn't be there. And yeah, if you look at the content of the tests, when I took the test, it was clear that they wanted teachers to be prepared, you know. So if a teacher is going to be teaching a foreign language, they should have a clear understanding of linguistics, of the culture, and the history of the language, right? Also, the history of the countries involved. I did think that some of the questions were a bit strange, though. 
I remember a question on the German test about what which region of Germany produced the most milk. And I remember a question on the Spanish test asking what grade most people in Mexico completed in terms of their schooling. I spent a semester in Spain and a year in Germany as an exchange student, and I understand that culture is a part of language teaching, but I felt like those questions weren't really as relevant as the others related to teaching. Yeah, I think it's important to have some general knowledge of the culture and maybe the history, like you said, of specific countries, but expecting a future teacher to know some of the facts you mentioned. I think that's way too much. And I, I don't think that knowing that information would make you a better teacher. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was hard for me to see the relevance to those questions. So talking about my experience teaching for international exams. So it's been an interesting experience learning how these tests work, their format, and seeing their similarities and differences. So I taught two 100-hour preparation courses for the TOEIC through the Corfo program in 2012 and 2013. And last year, I also taught a workshop-type course for high schoolers in Chile preparing for the TOEFL through Education USA. I believe it's called their Fondos Oportunidades. Um, so students that were receiving a scholarship that wanted to go to the United States to study. Other than that, my teaching has been with individuals or couples preparing for TOEFL, IELTS, TOEIC, and some classes for the PET and the FCE. To date, I've had a little over a dozen students successfully pass IELTS and right around that same number of students pass the TOEFL successfully with the scores they needed. So now that we've established our experience, it's time to move on to the next question. What is the purpose of these international exams anyway? Yeah, I think most of the people I've worked with have taken these exams because they wanted to study in another country or because they wanted to apply to scholarship. That process depended entirely on their on their skills to pass a test, which can be unfair, you know, because of all the preparation needed. And, you know, sometimes like, it depends on how much time, how much effort also on your educa the education you received, let's say, uh, primary school and secondary school. So there are many factors that we need to consider. However, I think it also guarantees that the process is somewhat balanced for all the test takers. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, you know, I see your point, And I mean, I think that, that that's more inherent of the education system and kind of the inequalities that might exist in Chile, you know, based on the family you're born into, based on, you know, the education you have, you know, and I mean... But if students still, if, if a test taker still has a really good level of English, you know, um, they would probably not have to invest that much time in learning the test. It's just a matter of learning the test taking strategies, you know, working under the time constraints and everything. And I know that some people really don't like these tests, but I think they're actually really useful. And I think it's really important to be sure that people have the appropriate level of English before they start studying in an English-speaking country. Taking one of these tests, it gives an indication of how well-prepared you are. It also saves a lot of time for universities and prospective students, as they can see who has an acceptable level to be able to participate in a university or study abroad program. In addition to that, some universities have programs that help students that are just short of the score they need or they have required courses to help international students develop their academic writing. I mean, could you imagine a right being accepted into a program in the States, you know, and being really excited and then going there and then not being able to understand your professors, not being able to write papers, not being able to communicate with your roommates? I mean, I feel like that would be a really, that would be just like a huge disaster. I mean, for the university, for the student. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just imagine that, and it would be it would be like such a, a terrible experience. That that's why it's really important to prepare not only, let's say, in order to pass a test, but also in terms of culture. And I, but I think we're going to discuss those uh, things later in the episode, right? Definitely, definitely, yeah. And I think that in addition to that, some people take international exams for immigration purposes or to certify their level of English for a job, and also to function in an international work environment, right? I think they're less common, but those things do happen. We've talked about our experiences and the purpose of the tests, but now we have a big question to address. What are the main international exams? Okay, so I'm going to provide a general overview of some of the most important English language tests available in the market. So the first one is TOEIC, you know, uh, which is provided by the same company that created the, the TOEFL IBT, which is ETS.org. And let's say, well, the the TOEIC, let's say, has the, the main objective is to measure the English skills needed to work in an international environment. And the type of test that you can find... You can find one that just measures listening and reading skills, or another one that only measures speaking and writing skills. And there is another uh, type of test, which is called the TOEIC Bridge Test, which only measures listening and reading. It's like a sort of placement test, okay? Uh, but it only goes through levels A1, A2, and B1. That would be one. And it's worth mentioning that the scores that you obtain in this test are only valid for two years. So the next one is the TOEFL IBT, which is internet-based. The scores are also valid for two years. And this test, let's say, measures four skills, reading, listening, writing, and speaking. Let's say, yeah, it, it claims that it measures also, let's say, uh, A1 level up to C1. Some people might say, I mean, I, I we've seen some studies that they, it also measures, you know, the skills up to C2 level, but it's most commonly associated with C1 level, okay? So it goes from zero to 120 points, and you would get... Uh, each, you know, uh, skill, the maximum number of points you can get is 30. And people usually take it when they want to study abroad, also for immigration and work purposes. But I think the main objective here is when people want to study in another country. Yeah, the other test is the IELTS, which is provided, let's say, by two, I think, um, main institutions, one in Australia and the other one it's Cambridge. Um, well, this test uh has two versions the first one is academic the other one is called general training you can get let's say the minimum score is zero but that would be not doing anything you know not even uh let's say responding to any questions so that would be and the maximum score is a nine so this that's why this test claims to be one level that would be if you obtain a four and c2 level that would be if you obtained a nine and let's say the academic, of course, version is usually taken by people who want to study abroad and general training with people, people who would like to live in another country or to work in another country. And it's also worth mentioning that the scores are valid for two years only. And then we have, let's say, a set of exams, which is provided by uh, Cambridge uh, exams. It's important to say that they do not have an expiry date, even though they usually suggest that uh, let's say you should take these, these exams regularly, let's say every two or for some people would say every five years to see if your, let's say, language skills have improved or if they have, let's say, in a way worsened, right? So there are different types of exams, you know, some for young learners, some for general English, some others, let's say, for business English. And the most popular ones are, well, their names have changed throughout the years, but like the now they're called key 
that A2 level, preliminary, B1 level, first, B2 level, advanced, C1 level, and proficiency, C2 level. You can also use them for academic purposes, uh, immigration and work. But here I would say um, that people use these tests when they want to obtain a language certification. Yeah, that's one thing I've heard that um, if they want to certify specifically their language level, people typically go for the Cambridge exams, whereas studying, you know, immigration, it's usually TOEFL, IELTS, one of those two. Yeah, and also, well, in the context of the the CORFO program, which is a government scholarship for people who are working, that's why they usually take, I mean, they prepare students for the TOEIC exam, and it makes sense. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, people that are going to be taking the TOEIC, you know, um, they want to show their ability to use English in the workplace, you know, so that totally makes sense, you know, for the CORFO program to use that. So our next question is a common, but a very important one. What are the main differences between the two big tests, IELTS and TOEFL? So I'm going to talk about the IELTS exam. In terms of structure, IELTS is more straightforward. It has four sections, you know, listening, which has, let's say, four texts. Listening, which has four tasks, and that usually lasts for 30 minutes. Reading, it has three reading passages, and that's an hour in total. And writing, so here it's a little different depending on the type of test that you would like to take, either academic or general training. This section lasts for uh, 60 minutes, and it has two tasks. So the academic version requires writing about a graph, a process, and an essay. And general training requires writing a letter and an essay. And the speaking section uh, lasts, let's say... Uh, 10 minutes to 14 minutes and it has three parts and it's done let's say uh, with an examiner so you have the candidate and the examiner and that's why I think and this is something that some students have told me that they prefer to take the IELTS over the TOEFL exam because TOEFL is much more complex in terms of structure and tasks what are your thoughts on this Daniel yeah you know I totally see where people are coming from when they say that I have mixed feelings about IELTS versus TOEFL. So I feel like the listening part of the IELTS has information that's quite basic with the sections, listening for numbers and spellings and monologues. But at the same time, those are really important skills to have for day-to-day living in an English-speaking country, especially for people immigrating but not planning on studying. In contrast, I feel like the TOEFL listenings are much more academic and complex You know, um, people are speaking much more quickly. They're using idioms that you may not understand unless if you have studied English. And I feel like it better prepares test takers that are going to study versus those that are immigrating. They require you not only to understand academic lectures, but also conversations between professors and students, inferred meetings, and things like what a person's tone of voice communicates. So one of the big differences between the two tests is that IELTS has a variety of questions such as fill-in-the-blank, matching, and multiple choice, whereas TOEFL's listening questions are almost all multiple choice. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Daniel. I remember that the listening section was very long. I remember there was a lecture that was probably, I don't know, uh, 15 minutes, and I had to take good notes. So that's something I, I really needed to uh, develop, you know, like note-taking skills in order to complete that part successfully. And in a way, I think that the test is trying to simulate what you say, you know, a university lecture. A real university lecture where you have to listen to a professor, discuss, you know, take notes. And also, like you said, some classroom and campus situations when you have to, for example, uh, send a message to a professor because you would like to change or you would like to submit an an essay on a different date, you know, so things like that. So that's why I think it's a a different test and I think it encourages that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think that that um, that real life element is one thing that distinguishes, you know, the two tests from each other. So if we think of 
about the reading section. IELTS is interesting because of the variety of question types it has. So they have an academic reading section and a general one. And I think it's nice that they make the distinction between the different reading skills that test takers need based on their goals, right? If you're immigrating, they have things more like signs, brochures, you know, um, things like maybe a sign at a bank, you know, applications, which is going to be much more relevant if they're just immigrating. So if we look, if we consider the TOEFL, it's much more geared towards people planning on studying in an English speaking country and the academic reading passages, they all have multiple choice questions. They could be about any topic, but they're all at the introductory level. Yeah, it's nice to see that uh, IELTS has different versions for them for some skills because, yeah, the goals are so different in each test, you know, like. I feel that IELTS helps students focus on the test they need, you know, like either if it's academic or, you know, general training, whereas TOEFL requires students to focus more on academic, you know, skills like text or like you said, like maybe lectures or like maybe an essay or things like that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I believe there are some countries that use TOEFL scores for immigration purposes, but I believe IELTS is much more common. So if we move on to the writing section, we see a lot more divergence when it comes to writing with IELTS versus TOEFL. IELTS gives you one hour to complete the two tasks of a technical writing task describing a chart, graph, map, or process, and an essay for the academic training or a letter and an essay for the general training. TOEFL, on the other hand, has an integrated writing task that takes 20 minutes and an independent writing task that takes half an hour. So the integrated task involves reading a text and taking notes, listening to a professor speak about the text, and then writing a response, making a connection between the text and the lecture. It's quite complex, and it really tests your ability to read, listen, and synthesize information. Yeah, I remember that when I took the the uh, TOEFL test. You know, I had to prepare a lot. And like you said, they were very difficult. Uh, to complete because you need to understand the information, also report it, and sometimes provide a possible solution to a problem discussing the audio. So, if, for example, if you took the wrong note, maybe you understood the problem incorrectly, the, the whole task is, is, is going to be, let's say, rated incorrectly because you're not providing uh, a good solution because maybe the, the problem was not really appropriate. So, I feel like, let's say, in a way, it's preparing you for real life because you really need to understand what you're reading. Also, if you're discussing that with somebody and probably you need to report that, you know, in writing. Yeah. You know, I don't know if they do that anymore with TOEFL. Um, it's probably changed since the time that you've um, taken it. But I know that in the past they had speaking sections where you had to uh, give a solution. So I believe that question has been eliminated when they've shortened the test. That we just nicely into the last part, which is about speaking. So as you mentioned earlier, the IELTS test, I feel like it's really natural. It's basically a face-to-face -face conversation with an examiner, and you do have a two-minute section where you speak about a topic without interruptions. TOEFL, however, is quite different. You speak into a computer microphone, and for the first question, you record a response to a question about your personal experiences or personal preferences. You have a set time limit to think of your responses and a set time limit to speak. The questions after that require you to listen to conversations or academic lectures and summarize them, and then listen to an academic lecture in conjunction with a reading and summarize how they're related. So these aren't easy tasks to do, and you've got a time limit to think, and you have a time limit to record your response. So that really adds to the pressure. And I mean, it's not really natural because how many times in your academic career are you going to be speaking to a microphone and recording a message in 45 seconds you know probably not very often if at all so uh, between the two tests i started teaching toefl first 
So between the two exams, I started teaching TOEFL first. And I think it's obvious that I actually prefer TOEFL a little bit more. I feel a little more comfortable teaching it compared to IELTS. Then again, we know that no test is perfect. Yeah, I think we that's the first thing. We need to understand that, let's say, each test has pros and cons, you know? Sometimes, like, for some people, it would be a better idea just to, let's say, when they talk to somebody, you know, they feel more comfortable. Or they may feel the opposite, you know, maybe they may feel they feel more 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 anxious. But I, I get I remember when I had to do that and I had to speak into a microphone and I had to, you know, practice a lot for that with a timer, you know, I had 45 seconds to prepare, you know, and I had a minute to answer. And uh, if you're not really used to that, time pressure can also make you really anxious or also let's say. I remember that somebody who was taking, because we, it was like 10 of us in one room, and I think somebody had a problem with a the microphone, and they had to fix it at that, let's say, at that moment. So it was, let's say, a really, uh, it was a big in, uh, interruption, you know? So in my teaching experience, I would say that most students prefer the face-to-face -face interview. And in that case, IELTS would be their preferred option, because... Uh, I th I think that they would prefer seeing somebody, you know, their reaction, their body language that would make them feel, let's say, less nervous and let's say more relaxed in a way. Yeah, I can totally see that about the speaking section. And this reminds me of when I got my credentials for German and for Spanish. So back at that time, we didn't have the exam with a computer. It was a paper based exam. And then they actually played a CD for me. And they had a cassette tape, which they used to then record my response. And it was the same type of thing where I had a set amount of time to think and then a set amount of time to talk. And yeah, it was quite nerve wracking, you know, um, because I feel like there's so much pressure put on that moment to perform with speaking in another language at that particular moment and that 45 seconds or one minute that you're speaking. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, uh, I remember feeling that, you know, it was like, okay, I don't want this exam is very expensive. So I just want to take it once and pass it right away, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that was the thing too, with all those tests that I took, if I didn't pass it, I had to pay again to take them, you know? So yeah, I can totally relate. So that takes us to our next question. So what advice can we give to teachers preparing students for an international exam? I think that the first thing teachers should ask their students is, why do you need to take the test? What's your goal? You know, do you want to study? Or do you want to work abroad? Would you like to just get a language uh, certification? So I think that's that's key. And usually when I talk to my students or when somebody asks, let's say, for uh, for my opinion, I can see that they don't know so much about international exams or at least maybe the differences, similarities. So after ha after having a conversation and after, let's say, uh, considering what their main goal is, I tell them about the different options and then they say, oh, yeah, I think, let's say for, for me, uh, IELTS would work, uh, you know, better or maybe I, I think TOEFL would be the best option or sometimes FCE, you know, or FIRST or advanced, you know. Um, I think it's really important that students are preparing for and taking the right test. And as teachers, I feel like we have the obligation to make sure they're on the right track. In some cases, students might be able to take two or three different tests. And in that case, we can talk to them about their options and about what they feel better preparing for and plan accordingly. In addition to that, I think it's really important as a teacher to learn as much as possible about whatever test you're teaching through official channels such as the website, their Facebook page, YouTube, any official guides that they have available. In addition to that, you can also study test preparation books and take practice tests, but you will want to be wary of unofficial websites and books. 
textbook publishers, they do try to create readings, listenings, and they do write questions that are similar to official test questions, but there's no way of knowing if those questions are at the appropriate difficulty. In addition, standardized tests rigorously test their questions to check for validity and any type of bias since they're going to be used all over the world. So they want to be sure that a score of 105 on TOEFL in Chile is the same as a 105 in Egypt, as the same as 105 in Indonesia, all over the world. So um, I have used some textbooks where the listenings and the readings are much more difficult, or in some cases, they the readings are too easy compared to the test. So I tell students, you know, we can use this, but just so you know, this is not from an official book, so we need to take this with a grain of salt. Another thing that I think of, the internet is wonderful because that means anyone can have a website. Yeah, that's true. That's a positive thing. The negative thing, anyone can have a website. That's right? also true. <laughs> with anyone having a website, anyone having a YouTube channel, it can really be hard to tell who's an expert because anyone can say anything about themselves. And one thing that I think of too is that a person might study a test, they might know a test well, but they don't necessarily have a teaching background. So they may not know how to, how to convey the information. They may not know how to engage students so that they actually learn and they actually retain the information, right? And I think even just moving beyond that, it's not just about the test, you know, you need to develop these skills in order to be successful later on. Yeah, you know, and I've seen that, like you said, with some resources, like I remember some students were showing me a book and they say, yeah, I'm getting, you know, very good scores in practice tests. And yeah, well, when, you know, when they took the, the real test, it was a different story. Because like you said, sometimes it's really hard to control when an exercise is either too difficult or too easy. And also, let's say YouTube channels where you find people giving advice. Sometimes, I mean, I've... I've I've watched them and they are and they are very good. But sometimes you're like, this is not, let's say, a current version of the exam, you know, or they're giving, let's say, advice that's not really appropriate. So, and uh, I think, yeah, like 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 you said, we have to be really careful when, let's say, suggesting or recommending, uh, let's say, specific YouTube channels. I usually try to find the official sites where they show, for example speaking section, you know, like uh, from a past uh, exam. And I think that those are the only ones I usually use in class. Definitely, definitely. And yeah, so I think it was the second or third week of um, TOEFL workshops that I was doing through Education USA last year, when all of a sudden I noticed they were shortening the TOEFL. And they made that announcement, I think, like two weeks into me preparing the students. So I had to go to the official channel I had to go ahead, find out information, um, and I had to adjust things to make sure that they were prepared. And so I told them, you know, like, we have this news flash. This is just happening now, you know. So I said, if you are seeking out more information, you know, um, you will want to keep in mind that the test is now shortened. So any information you see might become outdated. And so, yeah, and I mean, I think that's one thing, starting with the official, then if you are going to use YouTube channels, you know, websites, I think that's okay, but, you know, go ahead, do your research, you know, find out about people's background. And because unfortunately, I've learned, you know, when you take online courses and things like that, um, things don't always live up to your expectations. So this takes us to our last question for the episode, which is as follows. 
what advice can we give to people preparing to take an international exam? The first recommendation is to understand that learning a language is a never-ending process. And you really need to commit yourself to studying a lot. And I mean, like, not only terms of language, but also, you know, reading and also writing. I think this is something that we, we've discussed, let's say, uh, in our conversation that academic writing is a, is a difficult skill to develop that requires time. Um, and I think how you study will depend on your goal. If you would like to study abroad, you need to watch lectures, like I said, or also let's say write or like uh, like we, we were just discussing, you can do that on YouTube nowadays. There are many lectures, let's say, that have a transcript uh, that, that were, let's say, recorded in uh, in a real university, you know? And you can learn academic vocabulary. You can see the way people ask questions or you can see the way people, let's say, interact with each other. Uh, you can also try to find articles or academic papers that talk about your area in English or in the language that you're studying. And in that way, you will start learning the technical vocabulary you need to strive in that type of academic environment, you know? Definitely, yeah. And I mean, those are really good points focusing on what skills you need to develop. So um, when I think about this, um, I really think that you need to eat, sleep, and think, speak English all the time. Um, it's not just about passing the test. You need to have a solid level of English in order to not only pass that test, but to be able to function in an English-speaking country. So if you're going to study in another country, that includes things like being able to follow a lecture in English, being able to participate in class, writing academic papers in English with very high expectations. And that's the thing. Once you get there, you know, your papers have to be perfect with grammar. They have to be perfect with, you know, your word order and all those things. You know, your expectations are going to be the same as for people whose native language is English. And so then also, if you think about living in another country, being able to socialize with your classmates in English, everyday things like being able to make a call to set up your internet service in a new apartment. I realize no one's language skills are going to be perfect in another language. I know my Spanish is certainly not perfect. I know my German is certainly not perfect. But if you don't have those language skills well-developed, it's going to make your experience living abroad much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think because besides going to, to class in another country using a different language, you're going to meet new people, you're going to make new friends. So you really have to communicate with them and socialize, not only, let's say, uh, in class, but also outside class, like you said. And uh, and also, that I remember when I had to find an, an apartment in Belgium, that was a difficult process. You know, it was long and I had to, let's say, I mean, you arrange some contracts and paperwork. So I think it's also important. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And I think that there, those are kind of practical things that um, you don't really think about until you're in the situation, you know. Um, and so I think that I've been very fortunate. Um, I mean, my Spanish was, I think it was pretty good when I got here, but not knowing Chilean Spanish and not knowing the culture, it made it difficult to get things done. But I was very lucky that, you know, I had, you know, people that looked out for me and helped me out along the way. So then, yeah, and another important thing to consider is that practice tests aren't the same thing as the real test. So while you might get the target score you need when you take a practice test, there are some really important things to think about. Did you take the test under time conditions? Did you take every part of the test in one block of two and a half or three hours with the number of breaks allowed under testing conditions? Are you using a practice test from an official source? Well, it's not always possible to take a practice test under strict testing conditions. It's important to not get too confident that you're prepared 
and then not get the score you need when you go to take the official test. That's one of the first things I uh, I discuss with somebody who's preparing for, for an exam. I really stress the importance of time, you know, because every section is timed strictly. For example, when we say reading, you have 20 minutes per passage in IELTS, you have 60 minutes, but if you use 22 minutes in the first passage, you have 18 for the second one, you know? So that's something that we really need to understand. Uh, even though you cannot replicate the exact same conditions that you will find in a real test, you can at least exert that pressure on yourself, you know, in terms of time. And that helps a lot. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that's a really good point, you know, taking care of the time, keeping an eye on that, you know, and doing the best that you can to simulate the conditions. All right. Well, that wraps up the questions that we have for today. And that's it for this episode of ELT in Chile. We hope you enjoyed hearing about teaching international exams. And in the next episode, We're going to continue this conversation and share some of the strategies we use when preparing students. So if you have any questions or comments, you can write us at podcast at eltinchile.com. Again, that's podcast at eltinchile.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as ELT in Chile. Thank you to Carlos Sebolveda, Andres Ranz, and Nicolas Roman for their help producing the podcast and maintaining the website www.eltinchile.com. I'm Daniel Gwim. And I'm Jose Luis Poblete. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay kind, and keep, keep on, on teaching. teaching.